I know I've seen some of you tag online on social media articles from the Babylon Bee. It's been become one of my favorite uh, websites out there. If you're not familiar, it's a satirical Christian. Well, it'd be fake news, is what it is. But it's a satirical Christian website. What some of the best articles? Uh, one recently was: Woman finally accepts doctrine of total depravity now that her daughter is two. <sighs> it takes a second. Holy Spirit unable to move through congregation as fog machine breaks. That's one of the classics. This one I just found recently. Local man relieved after spiritual gift test comes back negative for giving. And one of my personal favorites, youth pastor promoted to real pastor. But the one that caught my attention most recently that relates to today, and I'll read it to you. It's five sentences. It's not real long. Scientists still unable to locate mankind's innate goodness. Now, remember, this is satire, okay? This is not a real news article. These are not real researchers. Researchers at MIT revealed Friday they were still unable to locate mankind's innate moral goodness despite a $20 million federal government grant to scour every cell of the human body to locate the rumored decency with which every human is born. During a recent interview with a national science journal, researchers intently stared into a high-powered microscope, furrowing their brows as they looked over yet another piece of the human body at the cellular level. But they remained unsuccessful in their attempt to find proof that every person is born morally upright. Quote, We thought we found it a few months back, but that turned out to be a dark, sinful nature infecting the tissue we were working with. Head researcher Dr. Flynn Albites told reporters, same results we've always gotten. We're staying positive, and we believe we'll find the inherent goodness everyone supposedly has in their hearts pretty soon. It's got to be in there somewhere. Gandhi said so, after all, he added. At publishing time, MIT's research department had applied for a further $20 million in federal funding to search for the elusive goodness within mankind, stating the project had proven to be much more difficult than they had originally anticipated. I'm not going to stand up here and give you a full explanation or even a partial explanation of original sin and how that affects us. Uh, Scholars and theologians have been trying it for a long time. But we want to believe that we're good, don't we? We want to believe in a lot of ways that we start at neutral in this life. And we want to have this kind of uh, Star Wars theology that says good and bad are co-equal forces and we'll just choose one or we'll choose the other in this life. But the, the reality is sin affects us profoundly from very early on, however you're going to explain that. And that's the reality. Uh, one of our Swedish forefathers of our denomination, the P.P. Uh, P. Waldenstrom, I think, said it really well when he pointed out, when it comes to original sin, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No matter how you want to explain how it got there, it's there very early, and we, we catch it. We've got it from an early stage. But we want to believe that we're good. And, and I was struck recently, I've been reading a book by a, an apologist named Abdu Murray, called Grand Central Question. I've told you about it before. I'll quote it in a moment because he, he says something very well. He says a lot of things very well in the book. But, but he's talking about these major world religions and the worldviews that they have. He himself was Muslim and converted to Christianity late in life and then became a Christian apologist. But he's talking about Islam. He's talking about secular humanism, which atheism's biggest sort of way it's, it's uh, spelled out. 
He's talking about pantheism, things like Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, those sorts of things, and the worldviews that they have. But he says when you come down to it, really the world's largest religion we could call good personism. That is, we think we can do it ourselves. We think that even with the bad that's within us, we can achieve whatever comes next, salvation or the afterlife or whatever it is. We have this belief that we're just, yeah, there's bad, but we can just outweigh it enough to overcome in this world. And even in the church, we get infected with this. As another Babylon Bee article pointed out, and I'll just give you the title, Woman unsure why she needs Jesus after preacher spends 30 minutes telling her how amazing she is, right? Sometimes we come away thinking we're pretty amazing people and we are, we're created good. We're created in God's image, but we're infected with sin. It gets us all, me and you, all of us have been hit with it and we can't overcome that burden. We've been looking in this series at five truths about Jesus. Uh, Specifically, we've looked at the fact that Jesus is real, both he really actually existed in history, but he still exists even now. We've looked at the fact that Jesus claimed to be God, and they seem like good claims, good grounds. I believe it. They were verified through what he did in this life. Prophecy pointed it out. We pointed out last week that Jesus never sinned. And this week, I want to talk about the fact that Jesus saves. Brothers and sisters, there is no other way. There aren't multiple paths leading to the same thing. It is Jesus who saves. And we're going to hear a verse where Peter says exactly that. And that's going to be our focal point this morning. In Acts chapter 4, if you're following along, we'll get there in a moment. Verse 12 is our key passage this morning. But but the the... Behind this series was a a study done by the Barna organization in 2015, polling the U.S. population, not the church population, just the U.S. population, finding some of their beliefs about Jesus. So most people affirmed that Jesus was a real historical person. There was uh, a split they found on if Jesus sinned. Some people say he didn't. Some people aren't sure. Some people say he did. Most of the U.S. population, the survey showed, have made a commitment to Jesus Christ in their lifetime. But a lot of people struggle with if good deeds are enough to save you or if it really is the cross of Christ that does it. Now, it's not exactly a 50-50 split. What the statistics show is that still a greater proportion of people in the U.S. population believe that it's Jesus that saves, but it gets that margin gets smaller as you get uh, into the younger age brackets. More people believe that good deeds will, in fact, save as you get younger in the age bracket. And what we've proclaimed through the series is that we need to walk in close communion with God, to live right with God. We've, we've hung this all on 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to stand before God as one approved, a worker who is not ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And when we draw close to the one who is holy, we are going to be changed in that process. And we'll be able to respond to the world that we live in in a godly way or a more godly way as we draw close to the one who is holy. That's what we've been saying. But it's only because we've been saved in the first place. It's only because we've been offered salvation through Jesus Christ and then we accept that, that this can then happen and play out. 
and we encounter a very uh, uh, straightforward presentation of salvation from Peter in one line in Acts for especially verse 12. But let's get a running start to it and start at verse 8. Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel at the time, basically. He and John have been called there, and he says this. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And here's the key. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by mankind by which we must be saved. Amen to that. That's what Peter tells us. Now, I'll give you a little more story to go with this in just a moment, and we're actually going to come back. We're going to work backwards. Uh, we're going to go to Romans 1 in a little bit, not yet, and then we're going to go back to Acts 3 so we can catch the actual story that got Peter in trouble because there's something very important for us to catch from it. But the book of Acts really gets going fast if you read it. Chapter 1, the disciples are standing there. They watch Jesus ascend after he gives his final words to go out into the world and tell everybody about what's happened, give them the good news. And they stand there perplexed, and an angel says, come on, guys, it's time to get to work. So they do. They start working. Chapter 2, we have Pentecost, where they're speaking in other tongues so other people can hear the good news in their own language. And 3,000 come to their number that day. People think they're nuts or drunk, all kinds of things, which Jesus said, that's the kind of stuff that's going to happen if you follow me. People are going to think you're crazy. But Peter gives this wonderful sermon, and then 3,000 are baptized. They join, and then we have this great picture in chapter 2 of the early church at work. It's, it's uh, encouraging and sometimes a little scary to the modern church to read that short little picture of the early church who was studying the disciples' words together, who were breaking the bread, who were sharing their possessions and, and taking care of anybody who had need. But that's what the early church did. And then in chapter 3, the thing that gets Peter and John in trouble happens. Because there's a man who's lying on the side of the road. He can't walk. He just doesn't have it in him. His legs won't do it. And he says, can I have some money? And Peter says, I don't have that. I have something better. And we'll get to that story in a moment. But that's what gets Peter in trouble. And they're pulled before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. And, and uh, the Sanhedrin was made up, we read right here, at least of the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees are there with him. Now, this is the same crew of people uh, who put Jesus on trial, and not in the most upright uh, and just way did they do it. So you can already tell that Peter and John, in the way that they're approaching this, probably aren't suspecting that justice is going to be served, because one, they're not really entirely sure what they've done wrong, and two... It didn't work out well when it, when it came to Jesus. And Jesus was before the Sanhedrin. They cut a few corners, to say the least, to, to put Jesus uh, on the cross. The Sadducees themselves were also typically guilty of, we'll just call it favoritism. Uh, some would call it nepotism. Um, that they would, just like after I graduated from college, um, I was driving a delivery truck, and it was a sales job. I remember I was delivering to an account early on, and a woman said to me, um, I'm going to stop service with you and go with your competitor. 
not because the price was better. In fact, it was worse. But because her friend from, from junior high was driving that route now, and she wanted to go with that. That's the Sadducees at work. They did the exact same thing. Let's just get in our cousin into this, or our brother, and we'll just put in whatever we want in this. And they kind of cut corners in that way too. So it wasn't exactly a, a just system that they're working with. They're not trusted. But the big thing is that Peter and John, who are before them, are just a nuisance to them. The early church is just a nuisance to them. Jesus is a nuisance to them. Why? Because they thought the Messiah had already come. Among the Sadducees, they thought it happened uh, almost 200 years before with the Maccabees and this revolt that went on against, at the time, a Greek or Greekish ruling uh, group that ruled over that area. They overtook it, ruled this Maccabean family for about 100 years, had a triumphal entry and entry in everything into Jerusalem, and they thought it had already come. They weren't looking for anything from Jesus. He was a nuisance. The good news that Jesus brought was not good to them. It just meant that they were troubled by these people that were causing them issues. It's hard to value what you don't want, isn't it? They didn't value this. They didn't want this. If we can pivot then to our day and age, that's sometimes, I think, how the good news comes across in our culture. The same way it came across to the Sadducees. We live in a culture that tends to normalize sin or diminish it or try and call it something else. And so when the good news enters into our culture, too often, immediately it seems like an intrusion to people, like a problem, like a nuisance rather than a balm that heals. That's exactly what it is. It's not a nuisance. It's the good news. But we have to understand sin and the gravity of sin if we're going to understand salvation and what we're saved from. Because sin itself so easily gets relegated to just the things we do that are wrong, which are just the symptoms of the problem. Sin, in fact, uh, is turning ourselves into God. Sin runs much deeper as an attitude or an inner disposition that says, I know better than God, or I don't need God. And from that, once we cut God out of the picture and make ourselves the deity, we can do whatever we want at that point, or we can get away with an awful lot and justify it. So I think uh, rather nicely, Abdu Murray, who I quoted from before in his book, Grand Central Question, he states it well. He's making a bigger point, but you can catch the point we're making from this statement. He says, human sin is not just a moral failing or a mere lapse in judgment. It is a rebellion against the one who gives us purpose. It is, in a sense, the very violation of purpose. God has created us for relationship with himself. But in choosing our own way, we have taken it upon ourselves to tell God that we do not need him. He is not good enough for us, as it were. That is obviously offensive. And an offense against an infinite God would naturally require an infinite payment. So we minimize the effects of sin. And and in doing so, it functions like if you had a, if you owed somebody $40 and you said, here's 10, we're good. The offense is big that comes with sin. And we think by our own efforts, we can just, okay, this is good, God. I know I offended you. I know that I tried to turn myself into God, but 
we, we, we can just figure this out, right, if I just do my own thing. That's what we end up doing. We end up minimizing that giant of an offense against God. And that's what sin does. The biblical terms for sin, I think, are telling. And, and as I, you'll pop up on the screen, as, as I explain a couple of them, see if you find yourself in any of these, because we've all found ourselves in one of these or another. Uh, quite commonly, sin is used as, as something like if you have a bow and arrow and you let go of the arrow and you miss the target. That's sin. You know what right is. I just didn't achieve it. I hit the hay bale instead or whatever it is. Sin also can be described in Scripture as unrighteousness. So there's the way that we're supposed to walk. It's similar to the arrow, but it's as if we're kind of next to it or kind of going off in a different direction a little bit. God's way, and then we kind of just veer off course. We're, again, missing the mark. It's, it's in a similar vein. Or there's just evil. It gets described as evil with malintent. I meant to do it. I did it just because it was bad or just because it was the opposite. And, and in fact, this is one way that sin gets described that's very helpful, that, that sin is not really its own thing. It's a parasite that feeds off of the good. That's one way that Augustine and some others have talked about it through history. Then you get uh, one that I think plays out very easily in our world, which is a trespass or a transgression. Here's the line. I stepped across the line, right? Or, or as it might play out in some families, like don't you go and touch your sister. She doesn't want you to touch her. Don't you, don't you go over and, and touch the refrigerator. I told you not to. And then the kid does it. What are you going to do now, dad? Right? That's the kind of thing, trespass, transgression. And then the last one is just lawlessness. We either don't know the law or we just don't care. That's how sin is described in those different terms. And as you hear those, see if you find that one of those resonates more in your life than others but it gets worse. You thought it was done, didn't you, by listing out the sins. It gets worse. There's a real insidious nature about sin. It takes this stuff and it starts to call that normal. When sin pervades a culture and a group of people, that which should not be normal and should not be normalized, that's wrong, can easily become what's considered right. Or normal. And so uh, here's an example of that. Um, I remember in elementary school, I never got straight A's, just so the record's clear, except for one time in seventh grade. I don't know how it happened. I was always an A and B student, and, and a couple times C plus. Personal fitness in college, I got a C plus. So <laughs> it's not my strong suit, I guess. Um, but I remember sitting in class often in, in elementary school, not often, just happened a couple times, where you get the papers handed back and it was one that I did well on and the person sitting in front of you would, would have gotten like a D and you got an A and they turned to you. Maybe you've experienced something like this and they're like, oh, I got a D, what'd you get? I got an A and here's the response. Oh yeah, well, A's are stupid, right? <laughs> or, or even worse, yeah, well, you're stupid, you know, which is just not a great argument, right? You, but... But what we do is we, we minimize that which is supposed to be good and normal so that what is not normal, what is subpar, is, is justified. That's not normal. This is normal. My D is normal. And the problem, and we'll see a chart here. We saw our, our circle of holiness last week. Um, and you can see that there's something wrong with it now this week. 
We have sin is this barrier that blocks us from a holy God. We're supposed to be in communion with a holy God. Sin blocks us, but the nature of sin when it infects a group of people is that we then can think that sinful ways are normal ways and God's ways are backwards, are upside down. And so sin makes righteousness, the things that God is like and the way that we're supposed to be, look wrong, look stupid to others. That's what happens. That's what sin does. It so deeply ingrains itself. And so something like Romans 1, we'll read verse 18 to get into it, and then then it really gets thick there in verse 28. Uh, Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed. Paul writes this, From heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he really lays it out by verse 28. He says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do, do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve wrath, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That becomes the world when sin gets normalized. And we can easily still succumb in the church. Not so much to the normalization of sin, but to, to that worldview where, where God's ways seem still a little bit off. Even if they're not upside down, they seem at a 45 degree angle to us. Because, And I've been guilty of this over the years. We talk about relevance in the wrong direction quite often. We talk about making the Bible relevant to my life, making God relevant to my life when really we need to talk in the other direction, making myself relevant to God because I become irrelevant to God because of sin. But I need to make myself right with God. I need to line myself up with Scripture, not make Scripture line up with my life. We think of it in the wrong direction. It messes us up in profound ways. Sin does. Sometimes subtle, sometimes obvious. But we're off. And brothers and sisters, we don't have the capability of fixing it ourselves. We're so off sometimes. We need to be saved. That's why we need salvation. And so Peter so clearly says salvation is found in no one else. It's found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The beauty of salvation as a word by itself is it's not really all that magical. It means to be saved, right? Somebody's in the water, in the pool, drowning. Why do you have a lifeguard there? To save them, right? That's salvation in its simplest definition. It's God's rescue. God's rescue plan because we couldn't do it ourselves. It's God's rescue from sin, death, and the devil. And it's seen even more fully in God's provision that he gave a plan to be rescued when we couldn't plan it ourselves. We didn't even know in some cases we needed to be rescued. But God says, you do, and I've got the plan, and I'll take care of it. You just have to receive that plan. You have to jump in on board with the plan. And it's because of God's love. 
that he's motivated to save us. The other interesting word to me in this passage that's, that's important to recognize is not simply salvation, but there's no other name by which we must. Perhaps your translation says need to be or something like that. But it means the same basic thing. It's, it's giving us the clear clue that there's not another alternative. There's not a plan B. There's not another option. There aren't multiple paths. This is it. This is the one plan God has for the salvation of all of us, you, me, and everyone included. That's the plan. It's, it's a plan that includes everybody if they'll only get on board with the plan and recognize that. What's actually saved in the process? Well, I'll give you a thumbnail sketch. Uh, because what we talk about in, in the New Testament, people talk about the atonement, um, that, that we've been made one or the relationship has been repaired uh, through our salvation uh, enacted in us. Now, those of you that are theologically inclined, I am not about to describe all the theories of the atonement. In mentioning that word, you can rest easy. I'll draw this to a close at a reasonable time. But let me just give a couple pictures uh, or, or ideas that Scripture brings up about what's put together once we're saved and what's been lost in the first place. Scripture has lots of different ways of saying it. It says that we're, we're really enslaved to the power of sin. This is part of the problem. And, and the sins themselves, the symptoms, can be part of the problem in a major way for us. Perhaps we've succumbed to those in different ways. That Those hold us back. We're enslaved by the different sins, whether it be pride or greed or other things, lust. All those different sins that, that come into play because of that original disposition towards being sinful, towards doing it our own way and going our own way. Uh, darkness is the way our world is before we're saved. Despair, guilt, shame. See if you find yourself in any of these or if this is where you were. We're lost without this salvation. We're orphans without the salvation. We are at war with one another or we're hiding from being at war with one another. We're fearful of it because we can always find a fight. We're slaves to our passions. We're slaves to uh, trends. We're slaves to ourself. We're slaves to happiness. We're slaves to satisfaction. Those are the things that drive us, but they'll always let us down until we're saved. Because when we're saved, you see, we're set free. We're set free from the power of sin and death. Yeah, death thinks it has the final word right now, but it doesn't. We're set free from death having the final word. We're set free from final destruction. We're set free. We're cleansed from sin. We become children of God's family. We're citizens of a new kingdom. We're transformed into a new creation. We're healed. We're redeemed. That's what happens. We're pulled into God's presence is what we are. To be made new. When sin was out to destroy us to ruin us, to deceive us into thinking we were happy when we weren't, into thinking we had life when we didn't. And you get, you get this great picture of who we're supposed to be when we're saved in Acts, in the thing that, that implicated Peter and brought him before the Sanhedrin. That thing, you get this picture of who we're supposed to be when we're saved because there's actually salvation that goes on. So if you go to Acts 3, starting at verse 6. Peter's been asked by this man who's lame, lying on the side of the road. He can't walk. Can you give me some money? A fair request. Peter said, 
Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. By the way, the good news is not simply in our minds, just so we know. The good news is tangible. There's healing now. There's going to be a whole lot of healing later. Peter said, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him to the temple courts, and what's he doing? Walking and jumping and praising God. This is the life of salvation. We should be celebrating what God has done in us. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know those coexist bumper stickers? I don't like them. I won't go on about them right now. But let me just tell you this. Well, first of all, either people that have them, and if you have one in the room, you can talk to me later. I won't apologize much. Uh, Coexist bumper stickers. Either somebody knows something I don't know about the similarities in religious worldviews there and truth claims, or else they should just be rankly offensive to us, one or the other. Because all those world religions, including ours, have competing truth claims that don't really overlap as much as we want to think they do. But anyways, what's interesting to me is that kind of idea now is marketed to us as the enlightened person. If we can just rise above religion, rise above the religious self, and eventually we'll get rid of that religious stuff, right, and just be human, uh, then that's the enlightened self that we're presented with right now. And there's a whole lot of good that we as humans can achieve. God, in fact, gave us creativity. God gave us a lot of things so that we enjoy a lot of pursuits in this life. We want to work. That's how God created us. We want to pursue his creation and science in other areas. That's good. But sometimes we can fall into deceit that we can human solve a God-sized problem because of that, right? And so what happens is we end up minimizing sin as a culture. We end up elevating what the human can do and we get deceived that we can do it all. We get deceived by the limits of humanity. And we live in a culture that doesn't want to celebrate our salvation as we should. And we can even get infected with that in the church, that we shouldn't celebrate it as we should. But we've got to recognize the truth of the matter is salvation comes through only one, through Jesus Christ. And our response to that salvation should be that we should praise God. We should celebrate it with who we are and with all that we have jumping and dancing and singing because God has healed us, redeemed us. And so the question, uh, two questions that, that we're left with, I think, this morning is, have you chosen that? Have you chosen salvation? Not a dose of Jesus. Just give me the, the moral stuff. We've talked about that. That just won't cut it. Not just self-betterment. Some people pray and, and think they've been converted and they, they just want self-betterment. I'm just becoming a better version of myself. That's not what we're talking about. Salvation through Jesus Christ is what we're talking about, which is something different. And, and importantly then, if you have been saved, it doesn't mean we have to be perhaps so ecstatic as the man who's jumping and dancing but our life should reflect it. Our life should reflect that something has changed inside of us, and if it doesn't, then we have to return to question number one. Have we really chosen this? Or what needs to continue to be changed in me? 
that I would reflect the glory of God and who I am. That I would be a worker who's not ashamed, like we read in 2 Timothy, who can stand before God as one approved, who recognizes what God has done. I have a friend who, who just exudes Jesus, and I love it. He had a, a career for 40 years. He retired, and then he started a new one where he now works with kids. He gets to help people on a regular basis, and, and he'll tell you, even in his career, you know, he's kind of getting burned out in it, um, but, but especially now he's got this renewed energy, and he says, I just can't not tell people about Jesus. He recognizes the blessings in his own life that God has given him, the grace that he's received through Christ all these years. He says, I just can't stop. He, he works with students. He works with teachers. He works with uh, adults, uh, uh, parents. He works with uh, and, and has friends who don't know Jesus. And he meets with all of them and he talks with all of them. And it doesn't matter that he's in a public school setting. He's like, I just tell people about Jesus. I can't stop. That's the kind of attitude we need to have, that it so exudes out of us that one way or another people are going to see it. You know what? I've been saved. I'm not going to let that be held back. Let's pray. Let's thank God first of all. God, thank you so much that you offer us salvation. And I know even in my own life, sometimes that sense uh, that the, the man who walks and jumps for joy, that can be repressed even in me as I look around and I think, oh wait, there could be social embarrassment. Oh wait, uh, I forget your goodness to me. But God, don't let us forget this morning. Let us fully recognize and thank you and praise you for the good that you have done in our lives, motivated by your love. And you didn't have to do a bit of it, but you did it and you chose us. And you said, I want you to be a part of my family when otherwise we were on the outs. God, help us jump for joy this morning at your salvation and what you've done in our lives. We pray this all in your name. Amen.